You ready? I am ready. Perfect. Hi everyone, my name is Hannah, my pronouns are they, them. You're listening to a podcast on queer folks' favorite tunes. Welcome to Queer Sounds. Today's guest, uh, I'm just going to let her introduce herself. Hi there, Aubrey. How are you doing this morning? I'm well. I'm well. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, my name is Aubrey Calvin. I live in uh, Dallas, Texas. Well, near Dallas, Texas. My pronouns are she, her. I am a black trans woman and I am a writer, podcaster, and teacher. And I do other stuff, I guess. Yeah, um, you, you do a whole bunch of stuff. You uh, teach uh, government in a community college. You've got your podcast called Southern Queries. Um, I've seen your pieces around in, like, uh, I think, Gay Parenting Mag, amongst others, and Nerdist, and a whole bunch of stuff. Do you have, uh, like, if you, if, you, if you could only pick one, if you could only pick one, what, what, what word would describe you best? One word? That, oh, wow. Uh, eclectic. <laughs> and I picked that because that way I don't have to actually come up with a word that nails me down. I could just let it mean anything because I do like to try and do so many different projects. I don't like to be tied down to just one thing. So I'm going to, I'll say eclectic. I mean, I guess it's also the right word to describe yourself as a, free, a freelance writer, right? Um, I, um, I've, uh, come across specific parts of say your 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 story who you are as a person oh, no. and different yeah i've done my research and oh, no. to be honest i'm having a hard time to like cherry pick one of them and give that use that as a little bit of our cold opener before the actual uh first track starts so i'm i'm not entirely sure uh where where to start um Okay. Okay. No, you, you you were going to say something. That's take it away from me. I've 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 done my pre, well, I've done my I, preparation, I guess, but I guess in terms of you know where to start, if you're to cherry pick, the biggest thing I do outside of above the freelance writing, above my Southern Queries podcast, the most important thing I do is that I am a wife and parent. Yeah, okay, but that's and exactly I think, why I wouldn't want yeah. to start with that, right? Because the first part is like four minutes, and that's a part of you. <laughs> like, that's a part that we can, we can fill 15 minutes with that part of your person, of your, of your, okay. your being, right? So we'll get to that, right? We'll, we'll get definitely to get to it, yeah. So should we just dive straight into the music and and go from there? Why I feel not? like... I feel like if, if you uh, haven't gotten the message yet, we can we can talk about a whole lot of things. Um, but let's get track number one out of the way first. A true 80s classic. I think we're alone now by
Oh man, I love that song. I love that song so much. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, and that was, I, I, I mean, I did introduce it as an 80s classic, even though it's originally released in 1967 by Tommy James and the Shondells. But, you know, who even remembers them, right? Well, yes, and not too many people realize that that is a cover. And I do love that it's a cover. Yes. I mean, I also just found out today in preparation for the show. So, you know, what do I know? <laughs> well, I mean... I don't get the feeling you were around in the 80s, whereas I grew up with that song, so I am keenly aware that's a cover. Yeah, no, I'm, I was I was definitely not around in the 80s. Yeah, I know. I'm old. <laughs> I feel old. Does that count? Yes, that counts too. Um, So you've picked Tiffany, I Think We're Alone Now, released in 1987, uh, so exactly 20 years after the original. Why did you pick this one? You asked for my earliest musical memory, and that is literally my earliest memory. Yeah, I was six years old. I, I, I was a military kid, so my dad was in the United States Air Force, and we were living in Japan. And it was the year my little sister was born, and we were on the military base. And my earliest memories are of me listening to that song playing in the park on the Air Force Base. And it's always been my favorite 80s song by a mile. And I just love that it's a cover because I love more. I love music from the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, going back to the 40s, even the big band era. So the fact that it's a cover actually makes it mean more to me because it's got that connection to the past that I like. So I just I love that song. It reminds me of growing up on military bases. So um, what's what's this entire deal with uh, being a military kid because that sounds something that would probably make a lot of sense if you're American but I'm not so I've got no idea what that specifically means oh well you know my dad with my dad being in the United States Air Force we moved around a lot and so he, he you have to go wherever the military sends you so I was born in Louisiana when my dad was stationed there and then we moved to Japan we moved to Oklahoma all these different states in the United States. We moved to South Dakota before he retired. And my family, I guess, is originally from Oklahoma, although I wasn't born there. And so the thing about the United States military, well, how it used to be was that every three to five years, they would move you to a different location. So I grew up traveling around, and it wasn't until I was about 13 where we moved to a suburb in Oklahoma where I actually had a permanent, like we bought a, an actual house. We said, this is our permanent home. I grew up just expecting to move every four to five years and try to make new friends without the internet and <laughs> try to have a new school system and all that. So, uh, you know, and this was me, my my whole family, my, my mom, my dad, my older brother, my little sister. We would just move wherever the Air Force would take us. All right. And why do you, do you think that there's a specific reason why they were playing Tiffany in the airbase in Japan? Or is that just because it oh, happens to be 87 and that was just what people were listening to? I mean, that was a worldwide hit. That was a global phenomenon. Uh, plus, on, the, on, on, the, on military bases, especially the one in Japan, we had a good blend of the actual Japanese culture that we were around, that was around us, as well as imp American culture, a lot of it coming in from 
uh, Hawaii or from California, going across the Pacific Ocean. But there was always this good blend where I learned about Hello Kitty years before my other friends did, and I was watching Japanese anime year before years before the cartoons of it hit big over here in the United States. So it was always a good blend of quote unquote United States culture with whatever the local culture. I mean, you have to remember, and I don't know if this is good or bad, the United States has military bases all over the world, and we don't want to get into my leftist political views on that. I mean, you're allowed to. <laughs> I was like, 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 I don't know. Like, I still can't figure out why we feel like we need to have military bases on everybody else's country, but I know there's historical reasons, but my life has always been a blend of multiple regional cultures and international cultures so i've never really felt tied down and you know in the united states of america there's a lot of like state pride especially here in texas people love being from texas or new yorkers love being from new york i don't get that at all because i would just expect it to move around i don't have any state pride i just live places and then i get bored and want to leave them so um, you moved around and then uh, you settled in Oklahoma. Um, was that, yes. was that uh, how old were you at the time? I was 13. And for my parents, Oklahoma was home. They were from Oklahoma. And we didn't move to the city where my relatives are. We moved about an hour and a half away, but close enough that we could see my relatives a lot. So my dad retired. And we moved to Oklahoma in 13, when I was 13, and I did most of what we call high school there, and I went to college there, and then I moved to Texas. Um, do you have, like, different songs that you associate with the different locations you lived? So Tiffany would then be, like, the quote-unquote Japan song. Do you have Louisiana song, an Oklahoma song, a Dakota song? Louisiana, no. I was too little to remember that. I We moved when I was about one or two years old after I was born, so I don't even remember Louisiana. For South Dakota, yeah. I have, South Dakota was my big musical awakening. That was where I had my own... I started to become a preteen, early teenager. I had my first radio. That was my own. I had tapes. I had my very first CD, which was Janet Jackson's Janet, which... I had to share with my brother because my dad bought it and he didn't like it so he gave it to us. He said, I don't like this. Um, so South Dakota really was my musical awakening where I started to explore so many different musical artists because by the time you got to South Dakota, we had MTV. And I don't remember MTV in Japan, but we had it by the time we got to South Dakota. And so that my musical world just blew up. Whatever was on MTV, whatever whatever was on VH1, I just absorbed so much. MTV became my life. So we're talking all the 90s, early grunge era. We're talking me trying to understand the gangster rap era of the late 80s, early 90s, which I still don't understand it. The singer-songwriters of like Tracy Chapman, the big band, late 80s rock music of... Mr. Big and Poison and Van Halen. I just absorbed all of it. And I became one of those where I love every genre of music. So the South Dakota became a musical awakening. And then I continued it when we moved to Oklahoma, where I just fell in love with everything. 
crossing boundaries in every way possible, it sounds like. As much as possible. I mean, I think the difficulty with living in places that aren't very populous, like South Dakota and Oklahoma, is that we didn't get a lot of the, I would say a lot of the more countercultural movements, like the riot girl movement of Bikini Kill and Slater Kinney. That never came to me. That that kind of passed both those states by completely in terms of popularity. So if there's anything that's maybe more like a protest kind of culture, I really didn't see. If it wasn't on MTV or on the local radio station, it passed me by. So I look back and I'm like, wait, what, what was this Riot Girl movement? When did that happen? Where was Bikini Kill and Slater Kinney and like all these groups? And I go, I was alive in the 90s. Why didn't I ever hear of these? Well, they weren't huge in small, suburban, conservative Oklahoma or conservative South Dakota military bases. So I was exposed to a lot, but I also missed a lot because it wasn't a coastal, large population area. You just mentioned your uh, dad and your brother earlier. Did they mm-hmm. play a large role in uh, in the development of your music? Because I feel like parents and older siblings can like, particularly like feel the need to give you some kind of musical education well not on purpose it wasn't like intentional but i am black but i've always struggled struggled to understand a lot of rap because i had never i've always had difficulty with the slang i've always had difficulty with the coastal regional aspects of it and so for the longest time i liked whatever rap my brother liked and i didn't have a clue what most of it was talking about but if he liked it I kind of tried to like it too. And then for my dad, you know, my dad and my mom grew up in the 60s and the 70s. They were very big in Motown, Philadelphia soul. And I was exposed to a lot of that through them. So I grew up listening to Patti LaBelle of the Supremes, of the Temptations, the OJs, but really more the early to mid 70s. And I just, I still hold on to that. I still listen to a lot of that older black soul music all the time. My mom is the one who actually got me into musicals. Uh, she was She's very big into musicals, Cinderella, The Sound of Music. She would take me to a musical every time one would come anywhere near our remote little part of the world. She took me to the ballet. She took me to the Nutcracker and to see live symphonic concerts. So... My parents really tried to expose me to everything, but it wasn't about you have to know this. It's just they were, we were just interested. All right. Um, And from there, you uh, started developing your own taste in music, uh, followed Mm -hmm. by your college years. Did did anything change at the time? Yes. Uh, College was hard. I mean, because I spent most of my high school, just like 14 through 17, not only listening to current music, but expanding into the older stuff. This is, I fell in love with the Rat Pack, with Sammy Davis Jr., with more international groups, a British soul. But then I got to college, and I don't know. I kind of just... That's a good question. I don't know what kind of effect music had in my college years. I was so busy in college trying to figure out my identity. Really? Yeah, but I feel like maybe that's that's why stuff might change musically because you might uh, try to redefine yourself a little bit. I know, for example, when I switched from uh, high school to college, you know, I was always hanging out with the punk and emo kids, listening to Rise Against and whatnot. 
But then college happened and was like, you know what? Yes, I'm going to listen to more credible hipster indie stuff like Tame Impala and Arctic Monkeys. Like, No, I mean, no, I didn't because I've never really had music. Music hasn't really been a social thing for me. So I never really went to concerts with friends. I never really just hung out with friends listening to music. Music's always been a very private thing for me. And so, like, in those few instances where I'm hanging out with friends at their home or whatever in high school, we just listened to the radio, whatever was on TV, and my real exploration was really private. So I just struggled with so many other things in college, trying to figure out my identity. Uh, I wasn't out yet as trans. I wasn't out yet as queer. Uh, College was really the first time I had lived around a significant amount of other African-American people. Because growing up on military, where I did, and there was an African-American community, but it was always mixed in with the larger white community. And so for college, I kind of threw myself into black student groups and the NAACP and trying to really figure out my core black identity. So I guess I would say I did lean in some towards more R&B. Alicia Keys, Usher, Erica Badu was very big. Like her first, like her second album came out, you know, Mama's Gun, in two thousand when I was a freshman in college. So I think I did lean in more into the more neo soul idea because I think that's because that's what was popular back then. Right. It feels like, um, yeah, it's like it's just just something you're you're looking for an answer where that might not actually be one because. You were just too yeah. preoccupied with other stuff. Yes, and I've always kind of kept my musical tastes to myself because one thing I learned as a kid was that if you're a black kid in South Dakota or Oklahoma and you're trying to talk to people about things that aren't stereotypically black, you'll either get made, I was either made fun of or rejected. And so I learned early on, oh, Black people can't talk to other black people about Van Halen, about the new uh, Bon Jovi, about uh, ACDC. And I would be looked at like I was crazy. (laughs) So it's always been one of those where I've spent so long trying to find a community and fit in with different groups that I just learned to keep all my musical interest to myself because that's one less thing people can make fun of you for. Did you find a community where you felt safe to share your music at some point? And if so, where? I got married. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that checks out. Yeah. Yeah. No, like, you know, my wife, you know, like, oh, like, here's an example. So around the time of Tiffany going into the early 90s, this was the start of the boy band era. I mean, there's this whole 10 years of just uh, new edition, new kids on the block that was followed by NSYNC and Backstreet Boys. Well, I remember I loved New Kids on the Block. I love them so much. Something a little black boy is not supposed to really love. <laughs> uh, I still had a, I had a favorite one. So right along there were Tiffany and Debbie Gibson. New, I love New Kids on the Block. And I learned quickly that that's something that got you made fun of if you're hanging out with other black kids. And then I met my wife and she's like, yeah, I love New Kids on the Block too. They're awesome. <laughs> I, had the, I had their posters on the wall and I said, yes, that's why we're getting married because... We both have those same kind of struggles of having our black identity challenged 
because we liked non-black things. And, you know, I was big into NSYNC and Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears was high, high school. So I was very big into those. I was just huge. I was such a huge fan of those. No, but even before Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, I'm not entirely sure in what place New Kids on the Block falls in this in, in, in the chronological order of it all. But that's just another example of white uh, white white kids doing what black artists already have done, right? Because before Backstreet Boys, you had like Boys to Men and like the other the other boy groups and and and, and yeah. sing groups from before. And before New Kids on the Block, there was New Edition, and they even said, yeah. The, pe the people who created New Edition, uh, who created the New Kids on the Block, wanted a white version of New Edition, of five black kids from Boston. So, yeah, but I don't care. I liked it both. I liked it all. I mean, like, like I liked it all. Like, like so, yeah, like, I, I, I am aware of the historical part of it, but I like New Kids on the Block and New Edition. I like Boys to Men and Backstreet Boys. So, I'm totally aware of that whole cultural appropriation, just taking. But I still liked it. I mean, I'm sorry. Back, the Backstreet Boys were talented. They still are talented. I don't care what anyone says. I love them. Yeah, no, I agree. You don't have to. You don't have to apologize to me. And if anything, I need to apologize to you for thinking you weren't aware. No, no, no. But no, no, you don't have to apologize. But you can see, it just made it harder for me to find a community. I will say there was two years in high school, like my last two years, my junior senior year, about 16 and 17. I found a small group of people, and we all kind of just liked whatever. And it was fun. And then we all went our separate ways for college. So there was about two years there in all, where I could share my musical interests. And then I went off to college and I just kind of kept it all private again. All right. Let's continue to make another part of your taste in music public. Here's track number two, Chastity Brown, a track called Whisper. Come on over, babe. Come and get closer mm, Close enough to stay You know that you wanna Won't you whisper in my ear All that you want to Oh, won't you whisper in my ear All that you need Oh, just dancing in the dark Feeling you closer mm, And time won't tell us apart in the moment it's over Won't you whisper in my ear All that you want Oh, won't you whisper in my ear All that you need Oh, 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 and fortunate for me 
I love that song so much. Yeah, it's beautiful. Chesty Brown, Whisper 2017, off of the album Silhouette of Sirens. Why did you, why, why do you love it? Elaborate. So this was the category where you asked for my favorite queer artist, right? So Chastity Brown is a black, lesbian, Americana, and folk singer who is from the South, from Virginia or Tennessee. I want to say both. And she currently lives up north in Minneapolis, Minnesota, you know, where Prince lived. But she is perhaps my most favorite queer musical artist in the world. How so? What makes her stand out? Well, she kind of goes back to this whole thing I said about the whole musical exploration, how I kind of just listened to whatever was on MTV or BET. Yeah, it turns out when you do that, there's a lot you miss. (laughs) MTV wasn't playing black folk music. They weren't playing modern day. Well, no one plays modern day blues. I mean, that's all the records from my parents and stuff. But they weren't playing modern blues and Americana and this kind of folk Americana sound, the whole telling stories coming from the South with the emphasis on like acoustic guitar, banjo, things like that. That's not something that gets played on black radio stations or white radio stations. So we've come to think of whether you call it folk music, Americana, bluegrass, we come to think of it as kind of a white thing when there are so many great black artists who are doing amazing things in that Americana genre. And just as my, I just like to explore different musical, musical stylings. And I learned about Chastity Brown about the same time as I was coming out. So I came out in 2014 as trans and I, you know, I'm almost 40. I, I'm right on the edge between Generation X and Millennial. I'm either the youngest Gen Xer or the oldest millennial, depending on (laughs) which fake made-up category you want to use. And a lot of the more modern or newer queer music, just I think I'm just too old for a lot of it. And Chastity Brown, what just resonated with me. And I don't remember how I learned about her. I, I have no idea. I know she loves like one of her songs is like on a Grey's Anatomy soundtrack or something or I don't remember, but I fell in love with her and I just dive so much into her music and her music got me learning about other more singer songwriter, acoustic kind of uh, queer artists. And I just love the fact that she is unapologetically herself in a space where you think would not be welcoming being black and white dominated Americana, being a lesbian in conservative dominated Southern music, even though she travels all over the world. Uh, she plays with Annie DeFranco kind of thing. And I just love that she's unapologetically herself. And she says, this is how I am black. And I'm not going to try to fit into someone else's box. And I just love that about her. And I, she, I, she talks about it so much, how much the different genres of music aren't real how we've separated music into black and white and pop versus R&B versus country. And music is just music. All those genres were made up for radios and for marketing and by labels. I mean, really, it's just made up for marketing. And she's trying to really break down all those walls and say, yeah, I just make whatever music I like. And you could put in whatever category you want. But all of her songs, just the story she tells, just hit my heart in such a special way. 
you said that you uh, found out about this art around the time you transitioned uh, or mm -hmm. started to came out started to come out um do you have a specific song that you associate with that period of time or is this it i would say this is it because culture and news moves so quickly this these days i came out around the same time as caitlin jenner i mean technically i like to say i came out six months before Caitlyn Jenner, but I came out around that same time. And everything just moves so quickly. And so much of queer culture is, especially in the United States, queer culture is very extroverted. It's very in your face. RuPaul's Drag Race, Lil Nas X and Lady Gaga and uh, the Scissor Sisters. There's always this emphasis on being larger than life. And that's not and that's not all there is for queer culture, but for some reason that's all the media wants to show of us. And I started trying to relate to the queer community, and when all you see is that, I just couldn't relate to it. I said, I'm not gonna go out to a gay club. I'm tired and I've got a kid and I've got to work in the morning. Is there a CD I can listen to at home while I'm reading and <laughs> drinking wine? So my type of queer is definitely a bookshop coffee house, tea house, just want to chill at home. And that's part of why I like Chastity Brown is because she has music I can chill at home to without feeling like I have to go out and see other people. <laughs> One of the key questions in this podcast is how do you experience gender? Um, is I mean, now we could diverge into uh, whether or not this uh, introversion is part of it. We could talk about whether or not uh, you experience it in a specific way and you feel seen thanks to Chastity Brown? I don't know. But let's start with the question in and of itself. How do you experience gender? Mm. You know, the sad part is that I've went back and I've listened to about two-thirds of your episodes. And so I kind of thought this question would come up and I still don't have an answer. <laughs> you know, I, when I came out as trans, I surprised a lot of people. I surprised... My family, I surprised my wife, I surprised everyone because it was always something I kept hidden. One of the downsides of growing up on military bases and traveling around in the 80s and early 90s is that there were no out gay people. There were no out trans people. This was, I, and, I, and I mentioned the military bases in the beginning because my dad was a part of the military during a time when it was illegal to be gay where you could get fired and kicked out and charged with a crime for being gay or being a lesbian. So I didn't grow up around anything queer. And the military was very much a gendered society. Not that my, like my parents were never into strict gender roles. My parents weren't. But the society I grew up around was very much, oh, it's always the male officer in charge. And this was before women could be in combat roles, so women were always doing a clerical kind of position. So I grew up in a very gendered society where it was very clear that little black boys could not express femininity. And so I always experienced my gender expression and my transness as I was trying to figure it out when I didn't have words for it was through books. And that's still the how I experience a lot of things are through the characters I related to. You know, I relate to books book characters like I, I read a lot of Sweet Valley High I read a lot of Babysitter's Clubs I read a lot of girl coded books in the 80s and 70s eight, not 80s 70s I'm from the 70s in the 80s and 90s because that was a private thing I could do 
and no one ever questioned what you read. As long as you were reading a book, people leave you alone. Like, oh, you're reading a book? Kids don't read books these days. So if you're reading a book, we'll leave you alone. And I read a lot of those books by myself in my room. And that was kind of how I figured out that I was trans was through the characters I kept identifying with. And I would read fairy tales like Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales and the Grimm's brothers. And I only ever identified not even with the princess, usually with the evil witch. I'm like, yeah, I like her. Take that, Lucky in a Tower. I love the evil witch. So I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I never experienced, identified with like the, you know, the prince or whatever. This made me think of uh, something that I, uh, I read about you online as well. Because um, I found some... Oh, no. Yeah, there we go. Um, I found some, uh, some, some reviews people left you on Raid My Professor. And all of the five-star reviews no. were, oh, my God, I love... Uh, I, I love Miss Calvin. She's such a big nerd. Um, <laughs> I am a nerd. I am. So have have you always been this 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 type of uh, introverted nerd? Let me read and I'm be and, I, and I'm good. Or or is that too big of a yes. stretch? No. Yeah, that's basically it. That was basically it. I mean, the best thing about summer vacation was that there was no school to get in the way of all my reading. But the but the worst thing about summer vacation was that there was no school. So. <laughs> Like, like, I want to learn stuff. I loved being in school. I loved everything except for, well, life sciences are hard. But I loved learning. I still love learning. I love reading. And I, I struggle with people, you know? I, part of it is because I'm an introverted. I'm an introvert. Part of it is that I have social anxiety uh, and other, a few other mental health issues and a few other uh, neurodiverse related things. But mainly I struggle with people. And I struggle with socializing and books are a world I understand because they're usually a complete world. Like everything that's in the world that you need is on the page. So if it's not on the page, you don't need it. And I love that. And even now that's how I kind of relate. I have how I explored gender. I would re read lesbian pulp fiction books when I was trying to figure things out and read a lot of like essays, Susan Stryker and a lot of queer feminist theory. But then you turn on the radio and a lot of, and that's a different, <laughs> I don't know. It seems like the queer community I'm reading about and the queer theory and a lot of the queer experiences I'm reading about are not what you see on TV. No, and, those are the big extravagant pride parades, I reckon. Yeah, which I've been to pride. Um, I've been in pride parades for my job. I haven't loved it, but I did it. Don't ever want to do it again because it's weird. Marching down the street and waving at people you don't know. That's very weird. So I've done it, but it's just not my scene. I don't know. I just, as far as being a trans woman, it's hard because if you say you experience gender, are you looking up to other trans women? Are you wanting to emulate cis women? And now we seem to have shifted to this era with the trans community where there's less of a focus on passing less of a focus on being stealth and more of a focus on being yourself and experiencing your transness however you are. That's not the kind of transness I grew up learning about. And I'm not saying one is right or wrong. It's just a shift we're seeing. And early on, a big push I had was to focus on passing as much as possible, not to prove anything to myself or to prove anything to other people, but because I transitioned when I had a young daughter, she was four, five, six, seven, 
going to playgrounds and taking her to school and everything, and I wanted to make sure the environment was safe for her. So it was more about safety for my kid than me trying to be a certain type of woman. I just didn't want me and my kid to be hassled at the park. I mean, if we're going to talk about how do you experience gender, uh, we can maybe create a little bit more of a framework. Like, for example, mm-hmm. you've got this. Please, yes. We've got this. Uh, uh, we've got this Tiffany song, which is. Um, in my experience, largely associated with like the neon glitter 80s pop. And then yes, on the that. other end... And malls. I love malls. Yes. And malls, sure, yeah. Well, back back when people went to malls, malls were a big part of my life. So, yes. <laughs> and on the other hand, you've got, uh, we've we've heard this uh, Chesty Brown song, which is like calm and intimate. Do you, I mean, music is a very emotional, like, piece of media so um do you feel like this emotional reaction music has uh, like does that influence your your feelings about gender or how you feel in the moment well no i have all those emotional reactions just privately okay just... but you still have them and now i'm asking oh, no, what I mean, are those I... private reactions yeah no i totally have them like i have all the emotions i just don't see a need to show them to people um largely because sometimes you know in the past when i've showed them i've been made fun of sometimes I'm viewed as awkward, and sometimes it's just more comfortable for me to dance by myself in my room or in my office when I need to release tension, as opposed to dancing around a bunch of other people. Yeah, okay, but you don't have. So there is still this 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 shift then, and when you're even when you're when you're home alone. And now I'm asking, what is that internal process that's going on there? If if this is something too hard to figure out, then then we can we can just move on. But I am kind of wondering, like, sure, it's private, but you still there there there's still things you experience, and it might be getting a little bit too intrusive. But okay, all right, okay, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I've been working with a therapist on and off for about for a long time, figuring out my gender identity, my gender expression, and what community means and what who I am, and. We're not sure, but we think I might be on the autism spectrum. And so uh, there is a very public facing me that I use when I teach, when I'm out in public. And then there's a private me. And those are actually two very different people. And I've read in the neurodiverse community that they kind of call it masking, where there's like there's the public you and then there's the private you. And I guess that's why I struggle with a question like, how do I experience gender? I just know what feels right for me. And what feels right for me is to not show most of myself and to just have my public persona when I teach. I'm a very nerdy sci-fi person making fun of Gryffindors and Hufflepuffs and giving A's to all the Ravenclaws kind of thing and Slytherins. But privately speaking, no one sees the weird quirky side these days except my wife and daughter and my mother-in-law who... We, who, we all bought a house together, so we're kind of a multi-generational house. Uh, but if people say I'm a nerd, like on my, on my professor, that's intentional. That's what I've created as a teaching persona to help get students to understand government and not hate coming to class. I think that's the best I could do because when you ask how I experience gender, I don't think I can process that question. I'm struggle. I don't. I struggle with that question. Yeah, no, a, a lot of people do. So don't don't worry about yeah. it. It's uh, it's a complicated world out there, especially when it comes to pinpointing your gender and what the hell it even means. But yes. it's uh, yeah, it's 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 tricky. 
But I do feel like we've we've gotten a bit closer to what the I, core I, of your being might be. Books and wanting to be left alone. <laughs> All right. Speaking of closer, here is Closer by Corin Bailey Ray. I don't want to give you up. I don't want to hold you up. I don't want ambiguous. I just know that I've had enough. I want you to travel with me. Lay loose and let your mind go free. Show you things that you never see. Sir, Corrine Bailey Ray off of the album This Sea released 2010. Yes. Oh, oh, I love Corrine Bailey Ray so much. Yes. Um, here is the, This is the part of the show where we uh, get to listen to you talk about how amazing your family is and the, the, the link might be clear. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, my wife and I, we've been together for 14 years coming this in a few weeks to in September. And we have one daughter who was born in 2010, b- before I transitioned. And I've now been out for about seven years, and they have been so great. They're the most wonderfully supportive, protective people of me. Like, my wife is the most protective person of me in the whole world. She will not let anybody say a bad thing or about me or anything anti-queer. Um, and our daughter's name is Corinne. So... It's a name we both love. I, I first learned about the name from Corinne Bailey Ray. You know, she came out around 2006 or so, and I fell in love with her music, and I fell in love with her style and her look and her name, which is so amazing. And then my wife had already loved the name Corinne. And so our daughter was born in 2010, and we just fell in love with this little girl instantly. She's just our whole world. But at the same time, like any parents, she was a newborn. <laughs> In 2010, and so when Corinne Bailey Ray was doing her U.S. tour to support the second album, she came to Dallas, 
And it was our very first date after our daughter was born where we said, we love you, kid, but we need a break. <laughs> like, we need to go. And so we went to see Kerr and Bailey Ray because we're like, okay, this won't be too... Cause I can't do a lot of loud, like uber loud, over the top kind of music in, in person. It just kind of overwhelms me. But we sat up in the top and we just loved it so much. And it was our very first date after she was born. And now we've got her listening to Corinne Bailey Ray, and she's hooked on it. And my daughter's obsessed with all things European. You know, Corinne Bailey Ray, she is a black British woman that doesn't get enough attention here in the United States. Again, it's a whole part of that whole, the media really only wanting focusing on certain types of black music and ignoring a lot of the great music that comes out of Europe. Because in a lot of ways, European music seems to care more about the old 60s and 70s soul days of Detroit and Motown and Chicago and Philadelphia, that's gotten infused into European soul in a way that I think is sometimes underappreciated here in the United States. And Corinne Bailey Ray, she's a black British woman and she's amazing. And the concert was so good. And I think it was the last concert we went to before two weeks ago. <laughs> so it was the last concert we went to in 11 years. <laughs> yeah, no, I... um. I was, I'm also kind of thinking like, if we're talking about the race aspect of this, like we, if you, if you listen to this sound, it kind of reminds me of like a Liana La Hava, Savon La Lettre. Uh, exactly. But, yes. uh, but yes. you know, if we're, if we're talking about mid 2000s people who are heavily inspired by American soul and funk, uh, I, I'm just kind of thinking that she would have been bigger if it weren't for Amy Winehouse competing with that representative of that of those genres. Yes, and you know, American media, they like to pick on they pick one star and they grab onto her. And Amy Winehouse, you know, she had that tragic death and she had that troubled that troubled history with drugs and alcohol. So she was a more exciting story than just Corinne Bailey Ray who's just a phenomenal singer and just, you know, beautiful and talented and that wasn't enough so she was overshadowed by amy winehouse she was overshadowed by duffy she was overshadowed well i wouldn't say she was overshadowed but she was competing with joss stone at the time it was very crowded because we americans were like we're gonna have one british soul singer and that's it <laughs> and then i'm trying to think there was the other one and i can't think of her name please forgive me she does american boy and then she did a voice on Steven Estelle. Universe and the Crystal. Yes. She kind of, we know her more now as a voice actor than a singer, even though she's amazing. So yeah, um, the Americans are very limited in how much European culture we're willing to accept from any given year. It's very racist. It's very Euro-American-centric. Uh, but I love her. I love everything she does. I feel like the, it works the other way around as well. Like they're probably a bunch of American artists who we in Europe might never have heard of. Which uh, brings us back to this here little podcast we've got, because that's a way to yes, get uh, to introduce people to new artists. Hey, um, yes. either way, uh, that that one concert, uh, it, it, it happened. It was lovely. And from there on, uh, the parenting became like a, a large percent of your life, uh, I, I, I reckon. Yes. So I'm going to ask the obvious question. What's it like parenting as a uh, as a trans woman? uneventful it really is and i keep thinking I'm, I'm working on this article for like you said i write for gay parent magazine i write i'm i haven't i have a column in every issue they do and i'm working on this article on 
queer parent representation in the media. So like there's a lot of, you know, queer kids on TV these days. They're everywhere in every show. Queer kids are everywhere, but there's not as many queer parents, whether they're gay or lesbian or trans. And so I'm writing this article and there's no representation of parents that are transgender, except for say, Sophia Dorset Laverne Cox's character in Orange is the New Black. But she's in jail, so that's not exactly great parenting representation. But there's no representation of just being a transgender parent. And do you want to know why? Because parenting is boring. There's nothing special about being a trans parent versus being a non-trans parent. I'm taking her to ballet. <laughs> when you said you want to know my, my uh, you want to know why, my gut reaction was transphobia. But if it's because parenting is uneventful, then... No, because parenting is boring. No, but, I mean, come on. There are still a lot of parents in media, just none of them no, are there trans. are. So trans... No, so... no there, there are. There are. And, you know, I, I'm still trying to piece out this article. Like, I've got to finish it eventually. Um, but, yeah, there's no... There's this question of, will my daughter accept me... What will she call me? Will the other parents in the school accept me? And you go through all of that kind of early. Like we settled on Maddie or Madther, which is a combination of mommy and daddy. So I'm her Maddie or Madther when she feels like she wants to be formal and she's watched a lot of Downton Abbey with my wife. It's like, hello, Madther. I'm like, okay, I get it. You've watched The Crown lately. <laughs> We're we're talking now with the unevent with you calling it uneventful like several years down the line. I bet you yeah. felt about it differently ten years ago, or is that a wrong assumption? It was my biggest. It was my biggest worry. It was. It really was. I worried that coming out would would ruin my marriage. We had been married for going on six years. Our daughter was four. I had been grappling with my gender identity since I was a kid, and I had just put a some terms on it around 2008 I kind of realized I was trans well I'll say 2007 or so I realized I was trans which was the same year I met my wife and so I said well I'm trans I think I feel like that's the best term that describes me but I just met this wonderful woman and I clearly want to be with her for the rest of my life and she became my best friend my soulmate my everything all in one and so we got married within nine months. Like we met in November of 2007 and we're married in September 2008. I moved very quickly because, you know, I was sure. And then we, our daughter was born in 2010. So the whole time I kept thinking, I love these two people so much. They're my whole world. If I come out, I will lose them. And that was a big thing for us. When I came out in 2014 to my wife, we debated for about six months. Do we stay together? Do we not? I told my wife, I said, I don't want to lose you and Corinne. And if I need to not transition to keep you, that's the decision I'll make. And she said, that doesn't work for me because I refuse to let you not be who you are. That doesn't work for me. So you need to be who you are. She's so LGBTQ supportive. She's so she, she, she said, you have to be who you are, and I won't let you not transition for me. And we started looking at, maybe I'll get an apartment nearby. Maybe I'll just live close to them so that I could see my daughter every day. Because I was, one of, I was one of those where I saw my daughter every day she was born. I never did, like, business trips or something. There was one week out the year I would go for a work thing. One week. But I refused to be away from her. And 
I said, okay, I'll get an apartment nearby. That way I could see her every day because I want to see, I want to be in her life every day. And then after six months, we realized, oh, wait, we're fine with this. Let's just stay married. There's no need to actually, this is something we can handle. We can manage this together as a family. And we didn't want to be without each other. So we just didn't split up, which is unheard of because most of the stories you hear about when, especially when a trans woman comes out and she was a husband, the assumption is that you lose the family. The wife, you, the wife, and you all divorce and you lose the family. And that didn't happen for us. And we've never met another black couple, husband, wife, where the husband transitioned and they stayed together. To, to this day, we've never met another black couple where that happened. Our story is very unique. And we worried for a long time about what my daughter would call me and how my daughter would feel. And the whole name thing took a little bit of time switching from daddy to Maddie. And we let her pick Maddie. We let her pick the name she was comfortable with. So it took her about a year or six months to really get used to saying it. And then every once in a while, I would ask her how she's doing. Does she have any questions? And she would ask questions about how did you know you were a girl? Why weren't you born a girl? Those basic little kid questions. And then around eight or nine, she said, seriously stop asking questions i'm fine with this i don't care this is our life i'm happy most people would be jealous to have how great my life is i've got two awesome moms just stop asking the questions <laughs> so we haven't asked her since because she got tired of it how about the other way around like um when it comes to um her asking you about your gender, do you sometimes turn the question around like, hey, uh, we thought you were a girl at, born, is, at birth. Is that actually the case? And does that, does gender play a role in the way you raise her? No, no. We asked her that once. Or, we've asked her that once or twice just because we want her to know that she could tell us anything. That's the whole thing is that we want to make sure the lines of communication are always open. So we've asked her that a couple times. Actually... My wife was so anti-pink because you know, we knew we were having a girl. She was very anti-pink. She refused to do the paint the her bedroom pink. We wanted this kind of neon green and yellow kind of. And she said, I'm not doing pink. And at the time, the big fashion trend for baby rooms was pink and chocolate. She refused to do that. And then we, she was born and she was the most girliest, pinkest girl ever who fell in love with pink for years. <laughs> So despite all of that, she's still, but no, we don't, we ex let her explore everything. So she was playing with princesses at the same time she was playing with Wonder Woman and DC superhero girls. And she was really into Poison Ivy and she did gymnastics. She did, she does ballet now. She wants to be, so she's serious about ballet now, but we let her explore everything. We didn't really put any kind of limitations on her. And now she's more gravitated towards less pink and more Broadway cosplay, Percy Jackson. When she discovered Percy Jackson and Norse mythology and Greek mythology, that's a whole new world for her. So she just goes off and does whatever. We don't limit. We refuse to gender her in terms of what she can and can't do. All right. But that's a chance. Yeah. She's, you're, you're having a lot of fun with, with the three of you. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're such a close family. Like We homeschool our, which I know is controversial but we homeschool like we let her do we, she was in private school for about a few years like kindergarten through second and then we've homeschooled her ever since so we're on our fourth year of homeschooling uh because 
we have issues with the politics in Texas. That checks out. Yeah, that's that, yeah, that checks out, right? It's like, yeah. Like, if you've heard anything about Texas politics, you know why we homeschool her. Which she prefers. She, we ask her, do you want to go to public school and be our another kid? She said, no, because I want to study what we study. So, no, we're just a small, tight-knit family. That's why I say it's boring. That's why I say transparenting is boring is because if you're just going by me, it's just like any other parenting. Right, yeah. I mean, I, in that in that sense, I'm the idiot for even asking the question, like, because no, no, who no, am I? Just... So, no, you're not that. You're not an idiot. It's something that's not talked about. Once you get past the whole figuring out the name thing and the gender identity thing and one, what you call each other, we're just normal, boring, suburban parents that want to do our own thing and not follow the rules and just live our lives. So once you get past the trans stuff, everything else is just normal parenting. The only difference is she's really, so, so this is a music show, right? She is really into music. She's really exploring a lot of queer artists. And so now she's introducing queer artists to me and I'm using some music to, as a way to connect with her. Like Haley Kiyoko, I exposed her to that. I said, hey, Rini, you got to hear this Haley Kiyoko. It's amazing as a way to kind of help make that bond with her coming into being a teenager. Just the other day, she introduced me to this artist named Francis Forever. And so we've been sharing music with different queer artists. And she's definitely an introvert like me, but she loves pop. So she does like a lot of synth pop, a lot of European and so she's been exposing me to new music, and I've been exposing her to my old stuff, and it's just been so much fun to share Spotify playlists. <laughs> that gives us the perfect segue into the last uh, song category for today, the uh, um, most recent discovery. Is there anything you want to share about this particular piece um, with the long title? I sing the body electric, especially when the power's out by Andrea Gibson. Yeah, no, Andrea Gibson is non-binary uh, and they use they, them. And a lot of their poems are about understanding their body, understanding gender and sexuality. And they had a great poem about race, but there's no music behind it. So I figured with this being Queer Sounds, I wanted to pick one that actually had some music to it and not just them speaking a poem. <laughs> so this was my second favorite of theirs. I sing the body electric. It's, I don't know. I think as a part of that whole exploring ways to express queer identity, it's music, but it's also poetry. And it's not something you can actually play on a radio, really. Like, this isn't, like, slam poetry is never really radio-friendly in terms of, it sounds like, what is this, a commercial? Are they advertising something? You have to, like, listen, it's just the lyrics that are the most important thing. And I discovered them just a few years ago, maybe during my last bout of depression, I think. About uh, with depression, I discovered them, and their words just resonated with me. And so all their new, they have a new album out that I have, that I've explored, but I still love this one the most. Their words just resonated with me in a way that, yes, I used to like poetry. Why did I stop reading poetry? What happened to that? I used to like slam poetry. Why did I stop that? And then I remembered, oh, because a lot of the slam poetry back in the early 2000s was pretty gendered and it was very much the plight of this is how black men feel. This is how black women feel. Like the 
slam poetry I was around. It was like, this is how black women feel. This is how black men feel. And it just felt very gendered. So I moved away from poetry. Then I found Andrea and they're just amazing. I don't know. I actually don't know much about their backstory, except I just know I love their words. All right. Amazing. With that, uh, let's call it for today. Uh, thank you all again for listening. This has been Queer Sounds. If you want to support the show, you can do so through uh, patreon.com slash queer sounds, all one word. Uh, there you can get uh, some stickers, access to the Queer Sounds Discord um, with, with, with like friends and listeners and uh, other former guests. Uh, you can follow the podcast at Queer Sounds Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. Uh, with that out of the way, here's Andrea Gibson. I sing the body electric, especially when the power's out. This is my body. I have weather veins. They are especially sensitive to dust storms and hurricanes. When I am nervous, my teeth chatter like a wheelbarrow collecting rain. I am rusty when I talk. It's the storm in me. The doctor said someday I might not be able to walk. It is in my blood like the iron. My mother is tough as nails. She held herself together the day she could no longer hold my niece. We said our kneecaps are our prayer beds. Everyone can walk further on their kneecaps than they can on their feet. This is my heartbeat. Like yours, it is a hatchet. It can build a house or tear one down. My mouth is a fire escape. The words coming out cannot care that they are naked. There is something burning in here. When it burns, I hold my own shell to my ear. Listen for the parade. When I was seven, the man who played the bagpipes wore a skirt. He was from Scotland, so I wanted to move there. Wanted my spine to be the spine of an unpublished book. My faith, the first and last page. The day my ribcage became monkey bars for a girl hanging on my every word. They said, you are not allowed to love her. Tried to take me by the throat to teach me I was not a boy. I had to unlearn their prison speak. Refused to make wishes on the star on the sheriff's chest. I started wishing on the stars in the sky instead. I said to the sun, tell me about the Big Bang. The sun said, it hurts to become. I carry that hurt on the tip of my tongue and whisper, bless your heart, every chance I get, so my family tree can be sure I have not left. You do not have to leave to arrive. I am learning this slowly. So sometimes, when I look in the mirror, my eyes look like the holes in the shoes of the shoeshine man. Some days, my hands are busy on the wrong things. Some days, I call my arms wings. When my head is in the clouds, it will take me a few more years to learn flying is not pushing away the ground but safety isn't always safe you can find one in every gun i am aiming to do better this is my body my exhaustion pipe will never pass inspection and still my lungs know how to breathe like a burning map every time i get lost behind the curtain of her hair find me by the window following my path to that trail of blood in the snow the day i open my veins the doctor who stitched me up asked me if i did it for attention For the record, 
If you have ever done anything for attention, this poem is attention. Title it with your name. It will scour the city bridge every time you stand staring at the river. It never wants to find your body doing anything but loving what it loves. Love what you love. Say, this is my body. It is no one's but mine. This is my nervous system, my wanting blood, my half-tamed addictions, my tongue tied up like a ball of Christmas lights. If you put a star on the top of my tree. Make sure it's a star that fell. Make sure it hit bottom like a tambourine. Cause all these words are stories for the staircase to the top of my lungs where I sing what hurts and the echo comes back. Bless your heart. Bless your holy kneecaps. They are so smart. You are so full of rain. There is so much that is growing. Hallelujah to your weather veins. Hallelujah to the ache, to the pull, to the pain to the fall, hallelujah to the grace and the body and every cell of us all.